Al Jazeera podcast. As we were recording this episode, we got word that the family of Al Jazeera's bureau chief in Gaza had been killed in an Israeli airstrike. Our colleague, Wael al Dahdouh, lost his wife and two children, along with others who were killed. We'll have more for you on Friday. The international order is very clear. These are war crimes. Targeted attacks on civilian infrastructure. These are acts of pure terror. That is European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. I call it genocide because it's become clearer and clearer. And that's U.S. President Joe Biden. But they're not talking about the place you might be thinking of. We do not believe Russia has the right to do what they're doing. We believe we should attempt an honorable peace. We also believe the Ukrainian people have a right to defend themselves. And those clips you heard are all more than a year old. Since October 7th, we've done full coverage of the war unfolding on Gaza, following Hamas's unprecedented attack inside Israel. Today, we're taking a step back to regular coverage with an update on another war, Russia's war on Ukraine, where the U.S. and E.U. have come to Ukraine's assistance to defend itself from invasion and occupation. We'll look at what some are calling an international double standard when it comes to the two conflicts. So what does the war on Gaza mean for the war on Ukraine? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. When we went to bed the night before the uh, attacks began, Ukraine was the lead story. Al Jazeera correspondent Zain Basravi was in Kyiv on October 7th, the date of the Hamas incursion. We just filed a piece um, about Russian attacks on civilian areas in the Kharkiv region. It was a series of very dramatic incidents with high death tolls over the course of um, several days. And we were convinced that this was going to be a story that was going to require follow-up reporting, that there was going to be a lot more for us to do in the coming days and in the coming uh, weeks. But we woke up to a totally, completely different news landscape. Even stories from the front line uh, with the military in Ukraine wouldn't see the light of day. It's still a significant story. There's still daily tragedies playing out. But what was happening in Gaza was, was, was somehow different. It was something more uh, intense. The concentration of that much violence in such a small space completely took over the news cycle. That was a dynamic that did not go unnoticed by Ukraine's leaders including President Vladimir Zelensky, who didn't hesitate to compare the conflicts, casting Hamas as Russia. This was on October 9th. The only difference is that there is a terrorist organization that attacked Israel. And here is a terrorist state that attacked Ukraine. The intentions declared are different, but the essence is the same. You see it. You see the same blood on the streets. You see the same civilian cars shut up. The government, right away, you could tell, 
saw this potentially as a kind of competing conflict. And, you know, whether it was on social media pages or direct statements from high-ranking officials, you could tell right away they saw this as something that could potentially mean they'd be competing for the attention of their Western allies. And we have to remember that Ukraine is a conflict that relies heavily on the support of countries like the U.S., U.K., France, the EU, uh, NATO countries. The European Union has agreed on a new 18 billion euro aid package for Ukraine. President Biden announced a massive new security assistance package worth $800 million, including drones, anti-tank weapons, and 20 million rounds of ammunition. Ukraine relies on them for equipment, for supplies, but also, very importantly, political support to keep the sort of Ukrainian cause, the Ukrainian you know, battle against Russia, keeping that relevant, keeping that, um, keeping that political support going is very important. In my interviews over the past couple of weeks, several guests have drawn their own parallels with Ukraine, but they're the reverse of Zelensky's. To them, Ukrainians' fight against Russia shares more similarities with the Palestinians both fighting a larger, better-equipped occupying force on their homeland. As for Zelensky, Zane said he's making a political calculation for Ukraine. Something President Zelensky has been talking about in recent weeks is the long war. And he knows that what he needs to carry on that long war, whatever that looks like, five years, ten years, who knows, he's going to continue to need the backing of allies like the United States, like European countries. Um, And that's why you see Ukraine's official position on the Israel-Palestine issue lining up in lockstep with those allies. Allies who haven't hesitated to condemn Russia over the past two years. Arab leaders have called it a double standard. This is Jordan's King Abdullah on Saturday at a multinational peace summit in Cairo. Anywhere else, attacking civilian infrastructure and deliberately starving an entire population of food, water, electricity, and basic necessities would be condemned. Accountability would be enforced immediately, unequivocally. And it has been done before, recently, in another conflict, but not in Gaza. It's been two weeks since Israel put in place the complete siege of the Gaza Strip. And still, for the most part, global silence. Yet the message the Arab world is hearing is loud and clear. Palestinians' lives matter less than Israeli ones. Our lives matter less than our lives. The application of international law is optional. And human rights have boundaries. They stop at borders. They stop at races. And they stop at religions. As for the Ukrainian people, Zayn said it's more complex than the statements from Zelensky. When you speak to regular Ukrainians, the initial feeling that you get from them is, yeah, they, they consider their leadership as uh, defining the, the parameters of, of what they should be thinking and feeling on this conflict, that they are pro-U.S., that the U.S. is their ally, thereby 
you know, they are pro-Israel because the United States is in support of Israel and, and therefore they have to fall in line. Putting it very simply, in very simple terms. But when you start to dig beneath the surface, when you start to have conversations, uh, when, you, when you begin to speak about the specifics of what's happening on the ground, there are parallels. They, they definitely feel parallels between themselves and the Palestinians, between an external force coming in, taking their land, pushing their people out, subjecting them to atrocities and humanitarian catastrophe. So what's the situation on the ground now in Ukraine? To catch up on the latest, I spoke to Al Jazeera correspondent Rob McBride, who took over from Zane in Kyiv last week. That's after the break. On the Inside Story podcast, we're discussing the UN's role in ending Israel's war on Gaza. What can the world body do in the face of such a clear objection to a ceasefire? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So, Rob, you have just returned to Ukraine. I understand you were last there in September. Has anything changed since you were gone? As far as the battlefield is concerned, I was here in September and then earlier in uh, the summer. Very little has changed. When I was here in the early parts of the summer, all of the talk was about the counteroffensive that was long awaited, much vaunted, about the possibility of Ukrainian forces with Western NATO training and NATO equipment uh, launching its counteroffensive and whether that was going to see any remarkable breakthroughs. On the battlefield, Ukraine's counteroffensive grinding on, with Ukrainian commanders now predicting a long war of attrition. We're now several months into this uh, counteroffensive, and there's been really relatively very little, at least on the battlefronts themselves. There's been a lot of military activity elsewhere behind the Russian lines and in other parts of the Ukraine. But as far as the front line is concerned and this long-awaited counteroffensive, we're several months in uh, with relatively little uh, to show for it. Hmm, wow. So, Rob, we've recently seen pushback within the U.S. Congress against spending on Ukraine. The funding bill President Biden signed minutes before the deadline did not include any funding for Ukraine. The president wants Congress to rectify that and fast. The U.S. and the EU have spent billions on economic and military aid. Where is that money being seen and felt on the front lines? And when might enough be enough for international donors? Yeah, certainly. I mean, that is a concern here. People are aware of the cost of this war, of the billions that are being spent. But as Ukrainians here would remind you, those countries are not having to shed blood. It is the Ukrainians who are dying and being wounded and maimed in such numbers on the front lines. They are only asking for a continuation uh, of this funding from the West. But it is appreciated that it does run into the billions. And yes, there is a pushback. And there is concern as well that, you know, in this quickly changing international landscape, There are the demands of Israel, which is a very uh, key ally of the United States, which is also asking for assistance in terms of military aid uh, and is also, of course, dominating the headlines. 
So there is a concern here um, just about whether it's going to uh, affect the amount of aid that's coming from the United States or from other European countries. I think the hope is that we're still getting these messages of support from the EU and from the President Biden administration. And so in the short and medium term, at least, I think there is an assurance, a guarantee that that uh, help will continue. And with those assurances, where does Zelensky fall in all of this? Is there pressure on him to deliver results? I guess so. I mean, there is a a sense of disappointment that we haven't seen the kind of military breakthrough that we had anticipated when this counter-offensive first began. Um, I think there is a a sense of frustration here in Kiev that maybe uh, the Western backers and all the military pundits had maybe uh, talked up this counter-offensive too much, had uh, expected uh, unrealistic targets to be met. You've got to remember that when these counteroffensives started largely around the Zaporizhia region on the southern front against the Russian forces, they were taking on uh, Russian defensives who had spent months uh, putting in place these very complicated uh, defenses, these very deep minefields. It is reckoned that uh, parts of Ukraine are amongst the most heavily mined pieces uh, of real estate anywhere in the world that uh, all of these defences were put in place, it has been a lot harder to try to break through these defences without having the backup and the support of fighter aircraft and so on that NATO countries are used to. But then at the same time, they have been using other munitions and other weapons that have been supplied by the West, such as the longer range uh, missiles to strike deep behind the Russian lines at uh, air bases uh, and also headquarters, such as the naval headquarters for the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol in Crimea. Moscow says Ukraine attacked Sevastopol with 10 cruise missiles and three unmanned boats. Russia's Ministry of Defence says it successfully intercepted most, but that two ships undergoing repairs were damaged. There have also been attacks on the Black Sea fleet way out in the in the Black Sea, with the result that uh, the, the Black Sea fleet um, of the Russian Navy uh, has lost a number of its ships to a country which effectively doesn't have a navy. So, you know, there are other successes that Ukraine can point to where they have really uh, delivered some quite damaging blows. Oh, finally, Rob, going forward, what does Zelensky have to do to keep Ukraine relevant on the world stage? I think he certainly has to uh, keep up the contacts with uh, the supporting nations in Western Europe. And we see that. We see the continuing attempts by uh, Zelensky's government to, to try to get EU membership. I think he's still reckoning on U.S. support from the uh, Biden administration. And we've seen, interestingly, even though Ukraine is competing with Israel for, you know, um, sophisticated military equipment from the United States, in some ways, uh, by the Biden administration linking Israel's war with Ukraine's war, 
especially in this joint package that uh, the uh, President Biden has requested from Congress of $100 billion in joint aid for both Israel uh, and Ukraine, uh, with $60 billion of that, the lion's share of that, going to Ukraine. That, if you like, in some ways will help Ukraine overcome some of the more skeptical voices in Congress because they'll be willing to go along with a, a joint aid package because Israel is in there as well. So in some ways, um, they will uh, benefit from that. And in the meantime, Rob says, there's still the whole winter to get through on battle lines that haven't really changed, as both Rob and Zane have seen firsthand. Right now, the battlefield, put to put it very simply, the battlefield feels static. It feels stuck in places. Now there's flare-ups happening. There's uh, ongoing active operations. They're dropping bombs in civilian areas. Consistently, routinely, on a daily basis. Ukrainians still die on a daily basis. Inside urban spaces, in urban centers, in towns and cities. You know, Russia is firing long-range heavy missiles, dropping heavy bombs on civilian areas. And Ukraine is fighting back with, with drones and with everything it can. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by David Enders and Sonia Bagat, with Amy Walters, Khalil Sultan, Saril Khalili, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Veronisa Kampana, Zaina Bezer, Chloe K. Lee, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>